upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. received in the last 10 minutes that your husband is trying to have you killed today. This week, I'll be telling you about the murder of Doug Carlisle. But first, let's get our PNW town profile. Spokane, Washington is the largest eastern Washington city, located 18 miles west of the Washington-Idaho border and 279 miles east of Seattle along I-90. Early human remains have been dated 8,000 to 13,000 years ago, likely belonging to those of the Spokane tribe, the first known inhabitants of the area. The city was obviously named after the tribe, and Spokane means Children of the Sun in Salishan. In the early 19th century, the Northwest Fur Company sent two white fur trappers west of the Rocky Mountains to search for fur, and this was the first encounter the tribe had with white men. They believed the two men were sacred and set the trappers up for the winter in the Colville River Valley. In 1836, Reverend Samuel Parker visited the area and reported that around 800 Native Americans were living near Spokane Falls. At this time, a medical mission was established by Marcus and Narcissa Whitman to aid Cayuse tribe members and also hikers of the Oregon Trail at Walla Walla in the south. I plan on going into this story in its own episode at some point, but spoiler alert, the Whitmans are unalive when this is all said and done, and Whitman College was established in their honor. I'm going to leave it here today for Spokane because I'll be back soon. Now, on to our story. 
On Sunday, December 15th, 2013, Doug Carlisle and his wife Alberta came home from church to their South Hill Spokane home. Alberta went upstairs but heard Doug talking to someone in the kitchen and went down to see who it was as they were not expecting any visitors. She found a man dressed in all black wearing a mask and pointing a gun at her husband. Doug told his wife to leave and begged the gunmen for their lives. Alberta ran back up the stairs and as she did she heard multiple gunshots. Terrified, she hid in a closet and called 911. Emergency responders found her in the closet when they arrived on the scene, and Doug was pronounced dead in the kitchen. He was 63 years old. The Carlisles were very religious people, and when the first responders arrived at the scene, they remarked how eerie it was to be at a murder scene where there was religious wall decor and Christmas music playing throughout the house. Not to mention, it was surprising for a homicide investigation to take place in the South Hill neighborhood of Spokane, which had a reputation for having wealthy residents and a lower crime rate than other areas of Spokane. Doug had actually been shot seven times, and robbery did not appear to be the motivation, as no valuables had been taken from the scene. The first red flag was that all of the doors and windows seemed to still be locked tight, so when police found Alberta in the closet, they immediately brought her to the station to answer some questions. Detectives described Alberta's personality as unique, and noted that some of her answers made them concerned. She was extremely upset that she had not been allowed to see her husband or to hug him and pray over him. She made it very clear at that point she cared more about praying over him than the police investigation. When she finally did tell investigators what happened that evening, they felt her story was rehearsed. They were also puzzled as to why the murderer would have left an eyewitness alive, as according to Alberta, she made direct eye contact with the killer before heading upstairs. Authorities began to dig into the lives of Doug and Alberta, checking to see if either were having affairs, money problems, or other issues that could possibly be a motive for Alberta to want Doug dead. As they reached out to those around the Carlisles, a neighbor reported that at around 5 p.m. on the evening of the murder, she had noticed a white van that she had never seen before, and it had made her uncomfortable and felt out of place. In fact, the neighbor had called the police and Crime Stoppers about it because the van was so out of place. Alberta also mentioned a white van in her interview as well. The police were able to speak with other neighbors, and one of them had a surveillance video system that caught the white van on the camera. Even though no one witnessed anyone coming through the gate to the Carlisle's house, and the front door was still locked, authorities deployed a scent-tracking dog that was able to lead them from a back entry to an open gate in the backyard that was out of the line of sight to neighbors and their cameras. While looking for any clues around the area, they found a fresh footprint in the mud on the back of the property, along with one welding glove just outside of the gate that was collected as evidence. Just beyond the back gate was a small wooded area, and just across from that was an elementary school. So the investigators were able to quickly obtain security footage from the school that showed a muscular man dressed in black, just as Alberta had described. They were able to see that the man ran towards the main road. Detectives felt that the man in black was a professional hitman, which obviously did not clear Alberta of involvement. Alberta was still unaware that her behavior had been raising red flags for the investigators. She was more concerned with being able to see her husband and also informing her children of what had happened. 
Her first call was to her son, Shane, who was decorating his Christmas tree at his home in Moses Lake. Shane took on the horrible task of notifying the rest of the adult children of the Carlisles. Alberta and Doug had been high school sweethearts who hit a rough patch early in the marriage. Alberta had found God and Doug had not, and this changed the dynamic of their relationship. At one point, she took their four children and left Doug, moving to Seattle. The couple would eventually reconcile after Doug had a spiritual experience and became a Christian, and they went on to have two more children, bringing the total to six. Along with struggles in their marriage, Doug had troubles in business as well. There were several bankruptcies, multiple failed businesses, IRS debts, and angry former business partners that accused Doug of not being an honest person and not paying his bills. But just a few years prior to the murder, things had turned around. The Carlisles had purchased their sprawling home in the South Hill area of Spokane that was big enough that it had a room for each of their six kids to stay in when they visited. And Alberta's new Mercedes was parked in the driveway on the night of the murder. In the home office, the police discovered financial information on Doug's desk, including loan applications. On various papers, the Carlisle's net worth was listed somewhere between 6 and $12 million. But what investigators couldn't decipher were the papers that were written in Arabic. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. For the upcoming holiday season, I'd like to put together another bonus episode for my listeners, but this time I need your help. If you have a personal true crime or spooky PNW story, email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Your story may be read on a future episode of Upper Left Corner. And now back to the story. Among the financial paperwork, it was discovered that Doug was tied to oil fields in North Dakota which was a surprise to authorities who were under the impression that Doug was an excavator. A friend of a friend had introduced Doug to the booming North Dakota oil fields, and Doug decided to go into business with him on a trucking company. The more he got involved in the lucrative oil business, the more his business dealings branched out. It wasn't too long before he tied himself up in a lease to drill for oil on 640 acres of land. The lease was almost $2 million, and so Doug began raising funds from his friends and family, including his own children, back in Washington. He promised them they would see a return on their money. In fact, they found a binder with contracts that promised a 100% return on investments within 90 days for people who invested in Doug's company, which is not a typical investment promise. For detectives sifting through all of the paperwork in the aftermath of Doug's murder, this added many, many names to the potential suspect list. Doug had over 10 business partners and many investors, and not everything seemed to be on the up and up at all times. Many of his former businesses had failed, leaving behind angry business partners, including his trucking business partner, James Henriksen. The more they looked into the murder, the more they really leaned towards the hitman theory. Doug and Alberta's family were terrified that the killer wasn't done yet, and Alberta and her children stocked up on weapons and security, as they didn't know why the patriarch of their family had been murdered, and were not sure if someone was coming back for them. After going through all of the possible suspects, police found a flyer in North Dakota warning the public against Doug's trucking partner, James Henriksen, and his wife, Sarah. It warned that they were frauds, and that James had an extensive rap sheet dating back to his teenage years. They dug deeper and found that a close acquaintance of the couple had gone missing about two years prior. His name was Casey Clark. He had moved to North Dakota to work for James, 
and one day had just up and vanished. James had been questioned multiple times in his disappearance, but had not been charged with anything. When this all came to light, James lawyered up and refused to speak with authorities about Doug's murder. Meanwhile, as they looked into Doug's life, it became very clear that he was not as financially stable as it looked from the outside. His house was heavily mortgaged, his cars weren't paid for, and a lot of those documents claiming he had a fortune were false. He didn't leave behind anything for Alberta to live on, not even a life insurance policy. The police were able to track down the driver of the van that was seen on the security video from the day of the murder. Timothy Succo matched the description given by the neighbor of the man in the white van, and he had borrowed the white van for work during the time that the murder was committed. The police were able to get a hold of the van and found a left-behind list that Timothy had made that was essentially a how-to guide on murder. Timothy lived only about 10 miles from Doug's Spokane home, but had no known ties to him. However, once the police were able to search his phone, they found a contact named James N.D., and the number was a match for Doug's trucking business partner, James Henriksen. Also uncovered was an affair that James was having with the daughter of the owner of the land that Doug and James were leasing to drill oil. It wasn't long before James's wife found out that his 19-year-old mistress was pregnant with his baby. James was also being investigated separately for a drug operation. The running theory was that James hired Timothy to kill Doug, and investigators became one step closer to proving that theory when DNA from the dropped welding glove matched Timothy. An informant also brought to light the involvement of two other men, Robert DeLeo and Todd Bates, who seemed to be Henriksen's right-hand men and the go-between for his various illegal activities. The connection became even more likely when Timothy's phone records showed he was in the same area at the time of Casey Clark's disappearance, so it appears these two had carried out their murder for hire plot at least once prior. At this point, Sarah had had enough and filed for divorce against James' wishes. Although he had a young girlfriend with whom he shared a child, he expected Sarah to stay. However, her mind was made up and she moved forward with the divorce. It wasn't long before the local sheriff called her and said she needed to come into the office immediately. When she arrived, Homeland Security was there and informed her that James had put out a hit on her and she was supposed to be killed that day. While Sarah was in the office, authorities arrested James and Sarah went into hiding at a shelter in a secret location and she was instructed to not contact anyone, including family and friends. Because of this, many people began looking for Sarah. She was eventually able to contact her family and return to her life. All the while, James was being transported from North Dakota to Spokane. He had hired someone to shoot the transport driver, set the bus on fire, and break him out of the back of the vehicle. He had still been claiming to have a lot of money in prison, and that is how he found his connections for this plan. But thankfully, the inmate he hired to make it happen had pending charges and chose to turn on James in order to reduce his own sentence. Once Timothy was interviewed, he confessed to both murders for hire. Had he not dropped that welding glove just outside the gate of the Carlisle property, the DNA would not have been available to link it to Timothy, and Casey Clark's murder would not have been solved either. The go-between men were sentenced to prison, with Robert DeLeo being sentenced to 22 years and Todd Bates receiving an eight-year sentence. The hitman, Timothy Secco, begged for forgiveness from Alberta in the courtroom. 
The only request he made when bargaining with authorities to confess was that he was sent to a prison with a mental health program so he could figure out what was wrong with him. Alberta says she believed Timothy's apology to be sincere as he cried and looked her directly in the eyes, so she did forgive him. He was sentenced to 30 years. James Hendrickson was convicted on 11 charges, including murder for hire. And unlike Timothy, he did not ask for forgiveness or try to help authorities locate Casey's body. At his sentencing hearing, he took the time to read a graphic short story about abortion for what some could only fathom was to cause people discomfort. He received two consecutive life sentences, and so far he has chosen not to appeal. James's ex-wife, Sarah, was never held responsible for anything related to the murders. However, she was convicted of mail fraud stemming from her actions with the trucking company that James and Doug were partnered in, and that landed her three years of probation. Casey Clark's family and friends are still looking for his remains. And that is the murder for hire of Doug Carlisle. This week's PNW wine that I paired with my true crime is from Arborcrest Wine Cellars out of Spokane, and it's their Cliff House Red. I was looking for something that will pair well with your upcoming Thanksgiving dinner, so here we go. This red blend was created in honor of the Cliff House, which is the historic mansion on the Arborcrest estate. It's a lavish wine made with the finest Columbia Valley red grapes. The bright fruit and jammy characters that unfold and linger on the palate are a fine example of the excellent fruit grown in the Columbia Valley. This medium-bodied wine displays layers of spicy oak, red currant, cedar, and black raspberry flavors. Cheers and happy Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. 